Welcome to episode 36 of the IU Panthers podcast. I'm your host, Rich Moser. On this week's episode, we talk with Mike Brad, a voice that will be immediately recognizable to Eastern Illinois Panther fans as he has served as the voice of the Panthers for basketball since the Kevin Duckworth era and has been calling EIU football games since Tony Romo graced the gridiron. On this week's episode, we talk to him about how he got into broadcasting, some of the memorable moments and players he has covered, and his love of IndyCar racing. Like this episode of EIU Panthers podcast and want to hear other archived episodes, then search EIU Panthers podcast wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and iHeartRadio podcasts. Consolidated Communications is a proud sponsor of Eastern Illinois Athletics. Learn more about the future of broadband for your home or business by visiting consolidated.com. In EIU Athletics news this week, congratulations to EIU runner Adam Swanson on his season, which wrapped up with All-American honors at the NCAA National Championships in Eugene, Oregon. Also, congratulations to Trey Sweeney, who earned All-American honors in baseball this week, becoming just the third EIU baseball player in the program's Division I era to earn All-American honors. And a final congratulations to the EIU Athletics Hall of Fame class of 2021 announced this week. The class will be inducted in October and includes Devin Bissell from women's soccer, Renee Hutchinson from volleyball and softball, Amber May from softball, Todd Maroney from cross country and track, and former volleyball coach Betty Ralston. Be sure to follow us online at eiupanthers.com for the latest news, schedule, stats, and more. You can also follow us on Twitter at EIU underscore Panthers. Now to this week's episode of EIU Panthers podcast with Mike Brad. And welcome to another edition of EIU Panthers podcast. We're joined now by, uh, when you hear it, you'll know it, a familiar voice, uh, the voice of the Panthers, Mike Brad, is a longtime radio announcer and our guest today. Hey, Rich, how you doing? Good. Well, Mike, I uh, appreciate you joining us on here. And like I said, people will, will know your voice. You've been doing this for a long time. I, I counted the years. I know you, the way you do it is for, for people, it's probably easier than to know the players as opposed to the years. But from a football standpoint, you've been doing it over 20 years now, but I know you always say that you came in the same year Tony Romo did, and Tony's already played his college, played his pro career, and you're still going. Yeah, but he he joined, He I guess he crossed over to the dark side now. He's an announcer too, so. But uh, yeah, I my first year broadcasting football was Tony's sophomore year. So the first game I broadcast full-time was Tony's first start of his sophomore year, and it was just sort of a fairy tale story all the way from there. And uh, you get to see Tony is now, of course, like you said, now successful as a an announcer, and you kind of have some some inside knowledge there as well. And the fact that in addition to being the announcer, you were a longtime professor here at Eastern, and I I know you were Tony's advisor when he was in college. I don't know if you had Tony of any of your classes, and maybe kind of. You knew what he was going to be able to do on the football field, but I don't know if this is maybe you had any inklings earlier that this may be a path he may go. I never really thought about that Tony would be, you know, a nationally known announcer. Um, I did have him in class a couple of times and uh, he was a you know, very good student and he really kind of took to the, the production side of television. I did not have him in, a, in an announcing class. I mean, he's got this, you know, terrific charismatic personality that works really well. I do remember, I mean, when we had him on campus, it was the, the notion of him playing in the NFL was a little bit of a long shot. 
Uh, so it turned out he didn't get drafted and got signed as a free agent. So I do remember having a conversation with him one time, though, about taking you know, what classes to take and and that perhaps, you know, any kind of public speaking or public relations classes might be helpful. If, you know, I said, I think I said something like if the NFL thing would really work out, you know, that could that could be really helpful. I had no idea. Number one, the NFL thing was going to work out as well as it yeah. did on the field. And number two, that he'd go on to become the you know, kind of national sensation he became as an announcer. Yeah, even a, um, a Jeopardy question or Jeopardy answer the other day from what I've heard on, on social media. Okay, yeah, I had, I had not heard that, but uh, he may do things beyond that too. It's hard, it's hard to tell him where he's, he's going to go. And then um, from a basketball standpoint, you've done that e even longer. You, and I, once again, I'll, I'll throw a name out that, that people know you, you were doing announcing. And I think if I'm correct, you were the color commentator when Kevin Duckworth played here. So that when people, so you you've been able to see some some notable names here for Eastern Illinois. Yeah, I did color commentary for four years and then started doing the play-by-play -play after that. So yeah, when Kevin Duckworth was a junior, would have been my first year as the color commentator. That would have been in the middle '80s. So that's way way back. And those were you know his last two years were two really good teams for Eastern. And then um, we had the 1992 team that went to the NCAA tournament. We had the 2001 team that a lot of people remember with Henry Domerkant, Kyle Hill. So there have been some real highlights there. But I think this will be, golly, I've got to do the math real quick. I think this will be my 34th year of uh, a basketball broadcast starting this fall. Now, a long time with that, you've had the same color announcer, Jack Ashmore. Jack is now retired. And so I guess people don't understand sometimes what the chemistry is there when you when you work with an announcer like that I mean you and Jack have been doing it for so long that I think that that's a partnership that you guys kind of became very comfortable with doing both football and basketball yeah I, I did all 34 years of basketball with Jack uh, not quite the whole time in football closer to fit the last 15 years for football but you're right it is there's a chemistry there um, we're basically, I mean, we could literally do those games. We sit side by side, but we could do those games, I think, in, in two different places, like over Zoom or whatever, because there's just kind of a, I don't know, a sixth sense maybe of, of him knowing when to jump in and me kind of knowing when he might jump in. And it kind of got to the place where I, I mean, I, I knew kind of what he was thinking about some things. And so I could kind of sometimes maybe lead him in that direction. And um, it was it was a real comfortable relationship. And so really going to miss Jack. And he didn't get to have his senior day yep. back in uh, April. The last football game should have been his final game. And and we had a couple of special things prepared and then the game got canceled. So he didn't get to have his senior day. But um, hopefully people appreciate it. He's still going to be around and we'll still get to see him, but certainly going to miss him on the air. Now, you, you talk about Jack didn't get to have a senior day that was impacted by COVID. Easter not able to play that final home football game from their standpoint. Jack did come back, I think it was a week or two later, and did a, didn't let people know the way you would have done it. That He also was a longtime broadcaster for high school at Charleston. Fittingly enough, from our standpoint, did his final game in the high school at the, the Coles County Clash where, where Charleston plays Mattoon. But we talk about going through the COVID year. You guys had some, some interesting situations this year and where you, you broadcast from probably some of the more unique places you've ever had to in your career. Yeah, it was, a, it was an odd year. Number one, we, we wore a mask, I think, every basketball game. Um, and that was different. That seemed like, I guess, like a lot of people in a lot of walks of life. It's kind of like, what? That sounds crazy. And then once you start to do it, you kind of get used to it and it's not that big a deal. And then we did broadcast from a lot of different locations, some new locations, some different locations. 
that was not a big deal really for me. I, for the most part, that was good. Some of them were probably an improvement uh, over the previous uh, location. I think probably the big thing in basketball and football, as it turned out, was just kind of the, the lack of access players not being able to be you know around the practices and stuff as much as as in the past so hopefully we can kind of get back to normals uh, starting this fall now you you also probably had a maybe maybe this wasn't a first but i think it was you actually had to uh, broadcast a couple games from your basement oh oh yeah <laughs> forgot about that yeah what one basketball game one football game we were not allowed to go to it was the marquette game in basketball and the Tennessee State game in football, visiting radio was not allowed either place. Uh, so in both cases, we set up a deal in my basement, Jack and I, where we um, broadcast basically off of the video feed. And then in the basketball game, it's the game's on at what FS1. So you're like, okay, well, this is a big national broadcast. No problems here. Well, they lost the video feed with about four minutes to go in the first half. And so we went through about a two or three minute period of the game where literally we had we knew the game was going on, but we couldn't see it or hear it or anything. So we broadcast from the live stats, which was kind of a throwback probably to 1920s baseball on the radio when they used to recreate games with a guy at the ballpark, you know, sending out a, a Western Union telegraph pitch by pitch of what was happening. And then the radio broadcasters in another city in the studio having to kind of make that up and make it sound live. We had about a two or three minute little taste of that. Prefer not to ever do that again. But um, yeah, that was that was different in both in both cases, and and I'd really not have to do that like to not have to do that again. Well, hopefully, we won't do that. But you, you talk about I can see the excitement when you kind of talk about different games, and I know teaching, you know, communications and radio broadcasting. You've been around it for a long time. When did you kind of decide that this was something that you you wanted to to kind of pursue? And I know you always you always tell people that you were an employee of, the, of Eastern and the, the radio was kind of a side gig, but I know this is that you do have a passion for it. And that's kind of something that you probably got a, you know, a taste for very early on in your life. Yeah. You know, I really, when I was a kid, I really loved sports, but I was, I figured out quickly, I wasn't any good at any sports. I was a really bad player. And, you know, I was the guy that would play right field in little league and the coach would put you in for two innings and then, you know, kind of hold your breath if you had to come to bat. But, um, but I really love the sports. And so I guess I must have somehow figured out in about junior high that I could, you know, either I, I know in junior high, I wanted to either be a newspaper sports reporter or do games on the radio. Um, and then somewhere after that, I figured out that I, the radio was the direction I wanted to go. Um, so that was a way, I think, to be around sports when, when I knew I wasn't going to be a player and didn't really, I think, want to be a coach ever. Um, as far as I, I figured out pretty early on that, you probably needed to make that kind of the side job and uh, have a full-time job. And so I did radio news for a while and then kind of literally fell into teaching, which I did for about 30 years. And I always said that um, radio was my habit, but I had to have a job to support my habit. And so either working in radio or, or the, eventually the teaching became the job to support my habit. But at the time I got into it, I mean, radio was a much more prominent thing. There weren't nearly as many games on television, a lot more, you know, local games on the radio. It was a little bit of a different world than it is today. Now you grew up in, in central Illinois. And so you, I know you're a lifelong Cardinals fan, but you're also a Chicago bears fan. Like a lot of people in, in the area, they have an NFL team. They follow in one city and they, they follow a baseball team in a different city. I'm guessing as a as a young boy, you probably listen to a lot of games on radio or there is that maybe kind of sparked the interest as well a little bit. 
Yeah, I think a lot of Cardinal games on the radio because back in those days, the Cardinals were not on TV most days. In fact, they were pretty much the only time you saw the Cardinals on TV was on, uh, they had a game, a local broadcast when they were on road games on Sundays. So that was like every other Sunday. And then uh, once in a while, when they were on the Saturday game of the week was the only time you saw them on TV. So I spent a lot of hours growing up listening to the Cardinal games on the radio and a lot of time listening to local high school games. Uh, we had a very strong, I, I grew up near Bloomington. There's a very strong station in Bloomington, WJBC, uh, which did a ton of high school games. They had four high schools in Bloomington Normal, plus some smaller schools in the area. And I listened to those announcers uh, growing up a lot. And I think that's sort of... Uh, kind of you know triggered my interest now the other thing that that people may not know about you is uh, you have some desire and some interest in a different type of sport there and i, I know um indy motor car racing and that may not be the right thing but i know you for a long time have gone to the indianapolis 500 which is i guess an interesting side story for you but i guess how did you get interested in that that was a totally a deal where my dad got me interested in that. When I was a little kid, he was interested in it. He, go, he started going to the Indy 500 in 1946. And so when I came along, he had a pretty good streak going already. Uh, and um, so I started going, when I think I was nine or 10 years old, uh, went with him. And, and the one just a couple of weeks ago was the really the 50th I've been to. Now, there were no fans at all last year. I would have been there last year, too. So it would have been the 51st year, but the 50th in a row I've attended. And yeah, I follow that year round, but particularly that that's a very, uh, that's a big deal for me. And uh, it's an acquired taste. Uh, it's probably something that a lot of people should do one time to go to it because it is a big event. It's a spectacle. As far as getting really interested in the racing angle of it, I think most people probably you know, like I say, that's an acquired taste. That's a little hard to get to learn to like. Um, but, you know, I've followed that for a long, long time and uh, still pay a lot of attention to that. Now, in that sport there, I think a lot of times in NASCAR, when I talk to people in, in NASCAR, they get excited about it, but they follow drivers. Is, do you find that that's very similar in Indy, too, that people may not know they follow more of a driver than than the sport? And that's what drives their passion for it. Not, not as much, I don't think, in IndyCar. Um, it's more people that follow the sport, or in the case of the Indy 500, it's people that follow the venue and the event. There's people that just go to that one race every year. I, I, I do tend to go to some others at times, but um, that, that's, that's the one they go to. And, and don't necessarily have a favorite driver. This year was a really good example of that, where Elio Castro Neves won the race He's pretty popular and he's pretty well known because he was on Dancing with the Stars and, you know, is a real personable guy. And as it became a, you know, evident late in the race that he had a really good chance to win and become the four-time winner. And there's only been, counting him now, four four-time winners in the 100-plus year history of that race. The crowd really got behind that. And it's, you know, that was a, it was a reduced crowd this year. It was about 40%. But even then, when he took the lead with like two laps to go, that place really got loud. And uh, everybody sort of became a fan of his in the last couple of couple of laps of that race just because of the, uh, you know, the historical value that that was going to have. It's to me, I admire this. People say they aren't athletes. Well, they're not like, you know, they, they couldn't play baseball or basketball. Those guys couldn't. But they do have, you know, tremendous eye hand coordination and you know tremendous skill in being able to control the car and the thing they they deal with that no other sport deals with is the danger thing particularly in IndyCar where it is a very dangerous uh, sport and people get hurt badly 
at times. You, I really admire their ability to kind of put that aside and, you know, do some pretty dangerous things in the last 20 laps of that race because they want to be a winner of the Indy 500. Now, you talk about preparation. Those guys prepare for that. Preparation is also a big thing for you when you're doing your, your broadcasts. And I know, I know personally, because I've worked with you for a number of years, how much time you put into that. But I guess, on an, I guess for the people that don't know how announcers put together a game and all that information, I guess take people through how you prepare for, you know, a football game, which is evidently a lot more information than a basketball game. Yeah, football is harder, more prep, because there's more just simply more players, more things that can happen. A basketball team has seven or eight pretty key players, and that's about it. Or a football team has got, you know, you may have, you know, you got 20, 22 starters, and, you know, probably 15 of those could be pretty key players. Um, first of all, you, I pretty much know the EIU part of it. That's just kind of a kind of an update every week, updating the stats to make sure those are up to date. Um, you know, injuries become a, a thing you have to follow, but you get to know the Eastern players real early in the season, but you have to start every, start all over every week with the opposition. So that involves getting the roster, um, you know, checking pronunciations. Maybe there's an interesting story or two behind a, a certain player that you would like to try to get on, updating statistics, getting a feel for how that team plays, What's their injury situation? What's kind of their key storylines? They've got a controversy at quarterback or maybe their number one running back is out and uh, they, they're really going to miss him, things like that. And so you sort of you pretty much start on Sunday to work toward the next Saturday with that. Um, do interviews with, um, you know, Coach Cushing. Um, I always talk to somebody from the opposing team, either a sports information director, radio announcer, somebody to kind of get a, a, you know, figure out what's going on there. So I don't know. I suppose it's about for a football game. It's about a 15 to 20 hour preparation. Basketball is probably less than half of that simply because uh, there's just not as many players. And sometimes in basketball, you're playing teams for the second or even third time and, and you get to know them. I typically also now in the last five years, it's become relatively easy to get video on opposing teams. So I try to watch uh, the opposing team, not for a full game, but for part of a game, just to help identify players so that when the game starts, I have a pretty good idea of, you know, what they're going to look like and who I'm looking for, what numbers I'm looking for uh, to kind of avoid any kind of, uh, you know, mix up in the first part of the broadcast. Now, you talk about video there. One of the things that that has changed in, in the business, especially at the Ohio Valley Conference level and for many years, you guys were doing the games on WIU-TV and also doing the radio on WIU, um, which carries the, the games here for Eastern Illinois. We're still kind of doing that, but in a different format now and the fact that the games are on ESPN+. Plus. So when you're doing a game, do you feel like you, you prep a little bit differently now for a, a home game, the fact that you're doing a, a radio and a TV audience in addition to a, a road game where it's just a radio audience? Yeah, very much so. And you, there's actually two angles to that, what you're hitting on. Number one is the fact that we're doing a simulcast, which is basically radio and television or video at the same time. Th from an announcer standpoint, those are two different styles of announcing. Radio announcers have a different style and different techniques than television announcers do. And so you're trying to blend the two. You don't want to talk too much for the television audience, but you don't want to talk too little for the radio audience. And you're kind of asking yourself, 
Yeah, I mean, where's where's most of our viewers slash listeners? Are they on the radio? Are they on the TV? We've had a lot of experience with that at Eastern. We were doing um, WEIU slash WEIU FM, you know, radio TV simulcast back in the 1990s. So we go back, you know, 20 some years off and on doing that. So that's, you know, that's, we're kind of old hat at that. The OVC digital network and the now ESPN plus have introduced a new angle. And that is when Eastern has a home game, uh, you have a, a significant audience of fans from the other team. And we, when you do radio, you typically don't really think about that. You, do, you don't have really fans from the other team. You have just Eastern fans primarily listening. Well, when you add fans in from the other team, now you need to maybe know a little bit more about the other team, because if you mispronounce their name or you, you make a mistake about the other team, that, you know, they pick up on that and that, that they think less of you and your credibility goes down. So in some respects, it makes it harder because I feel like you got to prepare even more uh, to be ready for the other team. And, um, you know, kind of a, just kind of a new element of complexity that's got added in here in the last few years. Now, you've been doing this for, for a long time, seen a lot of good players and, and good teams at Eastern and, and football and in basketball, I guess, not to make you, you single them out, but I guess what have you kind of noticed from maybe a football perspective in the, the 20 years that you kind of have done that? I'm guessing the game has dramatically changed from when the first game you did with Tony Romo under center to there, when it was last year with you know Otto Coons being the starting quarterback. Yeah, the, the football thing, I mean, first of all, the game has changed. It's much more offensive oriented now. Um, although Eastern was relative, I mean, Tony Romo was the quarterback my first three years and he completed a lot of passes. So Eastern has always been relatively pass oriented, but now it's even more so. Um, we've had just a remarkable run at Eastern in football. I mean, you look at, at a, a university kind of in the middle of nowhere, relatively small. And we've had, you know, this lightning literally strike three times at quarterback with Sean Payton and Tony Romo, and Jimmy Garoppolo. And then all three went on to become, you know, national figures with their engagement in the NFL. That's pretty amazing. Most schools we go to don't have, you know, Illinois State's had good football teams and, and we're sitting there a couple of years ago and they're playing their pregame video of all their famous stars that have played at Illinois State. And you're like, none of these guys are as well known as, any of those three from Eastern I just named. So we've really had a remarkable run. We've had a lot of success, a lot of playoff games. I mean, Bob, you know, a lot of that goes back to Bob Spoo. Bob was the coach when I started um, in my 20 some years, what Adam is the, the fourth football coach we've had. So there's been a lot of stability there, a lot of stability in basketball too, but uh, the, the football has been a lot of fun. I mean, that I don't think there'll ever be a season like that 2013 football season uh, with uh, the, number one, the way that team, you know, dominated games, but number two, the offensive nature of that team, that how easy they could go down the field and score. That was, that was like broadcasting video games that year. And uh, about the most disappointed I've ever been after an Eastern game was the night that that team got beat in the uh, quarterfinals of the FCS playoffs, because I felt like that was a real opportunity that had gotten away and probably would, would be a, a long time before we got back to being in that situation. Now, you, you talk about some of the, the good players and you, you mentioned the names that people know, but as from a football standpoint, is there a, a guy or two that, that kind of, you know, would, you would say are kind of the embodiment of, of what, what Eastern football has been or maybe kind of a, a player you enjoyed watching even if they weren't the, that star notar notariable name? 
Oh, golly, Rich, there have been a lot of them. I mean, you're, you're right, those three. And, and by the way, I'm Sean Payton was before my time as a broadcaster. I saw Sean Payton play games at Eastern, but I did not broadcast those games. But um, as far as um, maybe people, players that are people forget about, I mean, Vincent Webb was a really good running back here for four years. He's in the Hall of Fame now, but it's easy for him to kind of get lost in there. Um, another guy that's before my time who's in the Hall of Fame, but I always thought was a tremendous player is Tim Carver. And, you know, Tim, we see Tim from time to time now, and he's still a great booster. But Tim had a tremendous knack for for making tackles, just a little guy, but a tremendous knack for making plays on the football field. Um, there have just been a lot of them. And, you know, most of them, you know, got all conference uh, recognition or whatever. When Clint Sellers was a junior, he was as good a defensive player as I've ever seen and then got hurt as a senior and didn't get a play, basically. But, um, you know, those are just some of the names that stand out. Even even some of the quarterbacks that, uh, I mean, you know, Bodie Reeder was a pretty good quarterback at Eastern at times and, and some other guys like that. So we've had just a really good run of football players here over the last 20 years or so. And then when, from a, from a basketball standpoint, you've kind of really have seen a change in, in way that the game has really evolutionized when, when Eastern came in and this is hard for people to remember, they were a member of the Midcon conference and there were really good teams in the Midcon conference. There were really good names and players that people would have known. And so, I mean, they, when they look at those types of things, you know, I guess, how have you seen the changes in, from a basketball standpoint? Yeah, it's, that's really changed a lot. My, my first year broadcast in basketball play-by-play -play was the fall of 88. Jay Taylor was a senior at Eastern. Eastern had a, had a good team that year. They played in the Mid-Continent Conference, which is no longer. Uh, the, the remnants of the Mid-Continent is now the Summit League. But the, uh, the Mid-Con had eight teams then, and it was a really good basketball league. It had uh, Southwest Missouri was an excellent team. Northern Iowa was in that league. UIC, Green Bay, Tony Bennett was a freshman that year at Green Bay. They weren't very good that year, but uh, they got good by the time he was a senior. Valparaiso was in there. I mean, that Western Illinois, that was just a, that was a really good basketball league. That was the first year they had an automatic bid to the NCAA tournament. And that was a big deal, knowing that you could go to a conference tournament and play for a chance to go to the NCAA. Uh, eventually that league expanded, then it broke apart, then um, kind of had to almost completely change its membership, wasn't a very good situation by the middle 90s. The move to the OVC, a lot of people are like, well, there's not really natural rivals, and, the, and they're right about that, but it really is at the time, and it still probably is today, that, you know, the best option for EIU. It's been a constant changing thing. The OVC has changed a fair amount, teams going in and out over the last, uh, you know, 20 years that EIU's been in that. The game has changed. I mean, um, the, the the rareness of the four-year player is a big change, um, and and especially now with the with all the transfers. But but that's been gradually heading in that direction. And there just are not a lot of four-year players. That was kind of the the rule back when I started was that you know players would come in and play for four years everywhere, and you kind of knew who who had people coming back. And transfers were relatively rare. And now, you know, everybody's kind of just remaking their roster every year and you kind of kind of relearn all of that stuff. But and the style of play has really changed a lot um, for Eastern. I mean, when I started, you know, Kevin Duckworth was at center. They kind of played through him and they had John Collins and they, you know, the three point shot was a really new thing. And teams didn't really rely on it that much. The three point line has kind of moved in and out in that period. And today it's a you know a little different style of play. So. 
there have been a lot of changes. Um, I, I kind of miss the four-year player, um, being able to kind of get to know somebody and watch them develop and improve over a four-year period. But, um, you know, that's, that's how the game's going, and you're not gonna, we're not going to fix that. Now, part of the, the tenure where you've had that, the Panthers have been to the NCAA tournament two different times from two of the conferences that you mentioned. One, they won the Midcom, the other time the OBC. What were those experiences like? And I'm, I'm guessing they were, they were both, knowing you personally, I, they were both different experiences for you when you went into both of those tournaments. Yeah, it was, uh, the, the first one was in 92. And um, Eastern was supposed to have a good team in 1992 and really kind of disappointed during the regular season. They were real senior oriented. Um, they had Steve Rowe, Dave Olson, Barry Johnson were kind of the seniors in that group and had kind of a disappointing regular season, barely finished 500, went to the conference tournament in Cleveland and then really just caught fire and played really well, upset a Green Bay team in the semifinals. Uh, that was one of the best games, you know, I broadcast over a thousand EIU basketball games or real close to that, I think, and still probably one of the very best games, maybe the very best game I've ever seen an Eastern basketball team play was that win over Green Bay in the semifinals in 92 and then went on to, you know, to go to the NCAA tournament. Huge deal. First of all, it kind of came out of the blue. And second of all, this Division One stuff was pretty new at the time. And to be able to go to that tournament, that kind of you felt like EIU was on the map at that point. You know, we hadn't had Romo yet. We hadn't had Garoppolo yet. So we hadn't had that kind of stuff either. Um, so that was a really big deal. I mean, I can remember back in the you know, when you played one Big Ten team, you know, every three years or something, that was a really big deal. And now you play maybe multiple teams like that in a, in a, in a, a typical basketball season. So that was that was big in 92 because, number one, it kind of came out of the blue unexpectedly. And number two, it was brand new and kind of everybody figured out, oh, Eastern's in the same league with or the same division with the Big Ten. They can go play in that tournament. They play Indiana. You know, I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, um, one. That kind of stuff, everybody knew by then that Eastern was in Division One. The 01 team was really good all year long. They had Henry Domercan and Kyle Hill, two of the top five scorers in the country. Really fun team to watch. Played with great chemistry, very offensive-oriented. Could be pretty spectacular at times with Hill playing up around the rim. And, and that team, I think, got tied for second in the OVC and then pulled off the big comeback win in the OVC championship game when it looked like they were out of it and made this amazing comeback from 21 points down in the last nine minutes to win the game. So that was, um, you know, pretty spectacular too. In both cases, Eastern ended up as a number 15 seed and ended up playing a number two seed in the first round of the tournament, played Indiana in 92, played uh, Arizona in 01. And those were both teams that were really good and both went to the final four. So it felt like there was, you know, looking back, there was like no chance to pull any kind of an upset in the NCAA tournament, but they were both really good experiences. The 92 team got sent to Boise. Not very many people were able to do that. The 01 team went to Kansas City. That was a whole different deal. Eastern sold out all, what, 500 tickets or whatever they had for the first round, and I think even ended up buying some tickets from some of the other schools. There was probably maybe 750 Eastern fans out there in Kansas City. That was a, that was a really neat deal when they were able to go there. Now, you talk about the comeback in, in 2001 against Austin P. and I, I would say that may have been the most exciting game that you did until two years ago when Eastern came back and beat Murray State. I mean, how, where would that game – people are aware of that game, I'm sure, that the one of the biggest comebacks in college basketball history. I guess from an announcer standpoint, how did, 
how did how do you announce that game? <laughs> well, um, the the Murray State game we're talking about yeah, here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, people is like, oh, that people I've had tell me several times, oh, that must have been a great game to announce. Well, it was for the last six and a half minutes. You should have been with me, though, for the first 33 minutes of that game because it wasn't so much fun. That one just was kind of, you know, playing out as, oh, Murray State's beating us pretty bad again. You know, we've had that happen off and on at times in the past. And um, and then all of a sudden, just kind of that team got going on a little bit of a roll and Murray just kind of fell apart in the last uh, seven minutes of that game. So that that one happened so fast. It was kind of like, how did this happen when it was over? I mean, Josiah Wallace made the shot to, to win the game. It's kind of like, what just happened and how did that happen? Because literally 20 minutes ago on my watch, this game was a blowout. What, you know, what just happened here? The, the Austin P game in 01 was a little different from that in that it it never really, it, you, it was more of a slow catch up and you could kind of see it starting and, and they maybe had a chance to come back and you knew they could score points in a hurry and maybe still had a chance and they'd beaten Austin P during the regular season. So they knew they could beat them. Um, but yeah, that game from a, a couple of years ago was, that was one of the, the crazier games. Uh, and I'm still, I'm still not quite sure how they, how they made up some of that deficit that night. And then kind of same, getting ready to slowly wrap up here with you, kind of same question for you. You've seen a lot of basketball players over the time, and you mentioned the, you know, the Henry Dahmer camps and the Kyle Hill, the people, the names people know. Is there, you know, are there kind of some unsung heroes that that kind of guys that stood out to you that you really admired the way either maybe they played the game or the kind of the careers they had, even if the accolades maybe didn't follow them? Yeah, there have been some players that I felt like really were kind of, you know, blue-collar guys that got a lot out of their ability. Um, going back, Curtis Lee would be that way. He played on the uh, – he was a freshman, I guess, on the 92 team, but a uh, kid from Flora, Illinois, who was an undersized post player, but really skilled, really smart, knew how to play the game, kind of a throwback. Even by that time, he'd be a tremendous throwback today. Be a little bit like the uh, the center from Loyola has been the last few years, that kind of a style of player. Uh, Kanye Robinson was a real blue collar post player in the middle nineties, undersized that played with a lot of fire and, and somebody that I always watched, enjoyed watching play. Um, Matt Britton, kind of an unsung point guard on that uh, 01 team that went to the NCAA tournament. Matt Britton was a transfer to Eastern from division two. And first night I saw Matt Britton play, I'm like, man, this guy, he's not going to, He's not going to help at point guard. He's not very good. And boy, I was way wrong about that. Matt was plenty good. And he was uh, just what that 92 or rather 01 team needed to kind of make the chemistry fit together. Uh, more recent years, I mean, Josiah Wallace got a lot of attention, but I really enjoyed watching Josiah play and he could get on a run where literally you just couldn't guard him for 10 minute stretches of a game and he might score 20 points in 10 minutes. I always appreciated Max Smith the last several years and just kind of the consistency and you know, the ability to go out there and make that three-point shot night after night and keep that streak going. Um, back in kind of in between those two groups, um, Josh Gomes was a player I really enjoyed watching, a skilled player that, that I always saw played really hard. Um, so those those were some of them. Um, I'm sure I'm leaving guys out, but, uh, you know, I've just I've just really enjoyed it. And a lot of really good, good kids uh, have gone through the program. Well, Mike, I do appreciate your time. It was good catching up here in some of those, those memories, and we look forward to uh, hopefully broadcasting games in a more normal setting from a football and basketball standpoint this upcoming year. 
Yeah, we're ready to go. So um, looking forward to it. Late August, early start, I guess, uh, maybe even like the first football game in the country coming up at yep. Indiana State in late August. That'll be fun. Thanks, Rich. I appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. <laughs>